Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Sentimental in the City, a mini-series where we talk about each season of Sex and the City for the great American novel it truly is. My name is Karen O'Donoghue and this is the first class sleeper. <laughs> Joining me is Steve, in a wig, drunk, Dolly Alderton. <laughs> I cannot wait to talk about this series. I had so much fun re-watching it. This season is so much fun that I cycled through like four names for you before I ri- arrived on Steve in a wig drunk. <laughs> <laughs> what were the other contenders? <laughs> the other contenders were sleep with me or at least just lie on top of me, Dolly Alderton. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one was, so this is the pagoda we've been fighting for, Dolly Alderton. <laughs> I love, I love this season and I think a lot of it has to do with how there are basically, there's basically no plot in it. And there's, there's a lot no of plot. Harry Goldenblatt. Yeah, it's so, it's plotless. It's just vibes all season. I love it. Yeah, it's almost like, I think as we will remember from our very drunk and teary episode uh, covering season four, I think that you feel like you've gone through hell by the time you get through those four series. Mm. particularly with the big and the aid and stuff and then back to aid and back to big and and it does feel like this very minuscule neat compact little series that's only eight episodes because I don't know why I'm saying this because everyone listening to this podcast will already know that this was the season when Sarah Jessica Parker was pregnant so she could only Mm. do eight episodes and it feels almost like an interlude like a kind of character Mm. study interlude like a, a kind of convalescence recovering from what has just been all the all the narrative jam-packed narrative of the last four years there's just this brief moment to pause and reflect on the women that they've become and where they are in their lives I love it yes I love it as well I so agree with you on every point and it makes me really hopeful that like for this season, they were clearly like, okay, for scheduling conflicts, it has to be a short season. So let's make every single episode a banger. And like, totally. let's, let's like throw a lot of stuff at the wall. Let's bring them to new locations. Let's like do some fish out of water stuff. Um, and like, let's pack a lot of character journeys in and let's not make it too plotty. And it makes me really, really hopeful that the reboot carries the exact same tone. Yes. Because how many episodes is the reboot going to be? I don't actually, I honestly, I haven't looked that much into it considering how much super fans that we are, right? Have you? I know, I'm kind of quite proud. I'm quite proud of us that we haven't talked about the reboot that much. I know. I think it's because we both know that the reboot is going to be fun, but will ultimately slip into the ether, right? It will not be part, yeah. like there's, there's just no way it's going to join these six seasons as part of the legacy. And we kind of want this podcast to be timeless. <laughs> 
and also Caroline and I, one of our worst friendship qualities is we love congratulating each other on things that we're not talking about. So we have congratulated each other numerous times in the last year and how little we complain about COVID. <laughs> we re- I've never noticed that about us before, but we really do. We're so congratulatory over the stupidest shit. Yeah, yeah. That day where... Well, you and I and the dog went out for a walk and you sat in a load of dog shit and then you didn't complain about in it all day. In my best coat. In your best, most beautiful coat. And you didn't complain about it once. And I was like, there's the girl for me. Doesn't moan, doesn't wind. <laughs> I don't like a whinger. Yeah. And I love that about you. <laughs> this is nauseating, this bit. I know, it's so bad. <laughs> what, I, what I also love about you is how you, without fail every week, read the long disclaimer that we for some reason have put together at the top of every show would you like to go for it now i would love to so here we are sentimental in the city this is, i like as well that i get a little bit more showy every week very fruity it. it gets more and more fruity this is not an episode by episode analysis if that's what you're after, Juno Dawson does a great one in a podcast called So I Got to Thinking. This is not a judgment or breakdown of the more problematic elements of the show, although we will talk about them if they come up. This is not a place where we roll our eyes about things that people have already rolled their eyes about before. And in keeping with today's episode, self-congratulatory tone, I think it's because we both don't like whinging and we don't like whingers. We hate whingers! It's taken us a while to come out and say that, but here it is. We don't like Benji's. <laughs> this is not going to be jam-packed with trivia, but if you're interested, we recommend Sex in the City and Us by Jennifer Keishan Armstrong. We're interested in stepping back and looking at each season as an individual piece of work and looking at the themes, character journeys and lasting messages of it. We don't know the most about Sex in the City, but we sure as eggs do <laughs> feel the most about Sex in the City. <laughs> I love how we're acting as if we've been on the road with this show for years when we've been doing it for five weeks. At that point, I would turn the mic to the audience and get them to shout it. <laughs> Just a couple of old vaudevillians with some stage makeup and some Sex and the City trivia. <laughs> so, I'm going to take us through the big themes and plot arcs of this season. And it was, you know, obviously there's not an astonishing amount of plot going on, as we just said. It is kind of like an interlude, like character exploration. Um, But I noticed as well, it's the first season of this show that's about sex and single women that is really about single women. Like, they're all single. Oh, yeah, they are. They are. And it's a it's a different flavour of singledom to, to Series 1, because Series 1 was probably the last time when they were all single. Mm-hmm. But that was kind of what well, was obviously more youthful, but it was more um, charged. And it was definitely about them being fighting the urge between being hell bent on not being single, but also trying to find the joy of being single. Whereas this feels much more like they're just four broads who are just sitting in the state of singledom. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what makes it so interesting and so colourful as a season. Because you're right, in the first season, 
we had a lot of that sort of almost semi kind of masculine posturing where it's a lot of like, yeah, yeah we fucking drink and we don't have affairs to remember and we have a lot of inexplicable male friends we never connect with again. <laughs> and But this is like, I think as well because like there's a, a great line in the Atlantic City episode, which is such an iconic episode, um, where it's in Charlotte's 36th birthday and, and Carrie's playing blackjack and she says, you know, what happens after 36 you fall off the table. And mm. I do think that's very relevant because you know how like when you turn a big decade age, like 30 or 40, yeah, you're kind of, it's sort of the sort of accepted thing that the first year is kind of a free year. And then after that, you're sort of in your 30s. I think a totally. similar thing happens at 35. 35 is a very scary age for a lot of women because mm. of the very boring, fertile conversations that people have with you from the day you turn 30. That phrase, that phrase that you only ever hear in conjunction with the words fertility in 35, which is falls off a cliff. Ugh. It's so true. I've never heard that phrase ever used in any other context other than scaremongering women approaching or having just left the age of 35. Oh my God, you're so right. It's a bit like how you never hear the phrase grassy knoll or knoll outside of JFK. <laughs> like it's our grassy knoll. <laughs> Fertility falling off a cliff. Falls off a cliff, Caroline. Falls off a fucking cliff. You know what else falls off a cliff? Lemmings. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, she's sassy. At this point in the Vaudevillian show, everyone would stand up and give you a huge round of applause. And you would say, am I right, ladies? <laughs> am I right, ladies? <laughs> Let's further alienate ourselves from our friends who have different choices. Um... <laughs> Carry on, I completely, completely uh, sidetracked you there. No, no, so it's um, Big Themes is the first season when they're all single. Um, it's the introduction of both Jack Berger and Harry Goldenblatt. One is one of the best male creations of Sex and the City, and the other is, I think, the worst male creation, not just on se- in Sex and the City, but across all televised comedy drama. <laughs> um, Carrie's book is, I think, the main thing that happens in this season in terms of big plot. And I, I, and I think I, one of the reasons I feel so affectionately towards this season, because it is obviously the Carrie filter on everything means that it's extremely high octane and glamorous, but the nuts and bolts of her book journey is very accurate to what a book journey is for an author. Right. Would you say so? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I did really enjoy your note that if you were friends with Carrie, you would be very frustrated with her about how unambitious she is about her book. <laughs> it's, it really annoys me. It really annoys me that like, she's been a writer, like basically her entire adult life. And it takes someone approaching her for her to put her columns into a book. Like when she was having all that money trouble a season ago, pitch a book, <laughs> pitch a fucking book. <laughs> I know, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm with you. But you're right, they do, they track the highs and lows of that process. I think what's great about how Sex and City does plots like that is that it keeps these big, broad brushstroke and these big, glamorous things, this big, yeah. you know, unbelievably glamorous sort of book launch party that never happens in real life. But they get the nuances really right, so it doesn't matter. Yes. Which I really like. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of great American novels, Dolly, I, I think you have a doozy for us this week. I've been thinking about my great American novel for series five, basically for 10 days. And <laughs> I'm, ex- I'm excited to pitch it to you. 
So my great American novel for this series is I think it's about how we balance hope and disappointment. Mm. So this begins with the Samantha and Richard story and how she gives it another go with him. And she is full of hope and yet she is incredibly wary and she has to balance those two things all the time and ultimately her wariness is what ends it. There's that beautiful moment that encapsulates this so well when Charlotte goes to a talk by a kind of life coach, romance expert to help her sustain her belief in love. I think it's continued in the book episode when Carrie has posed the question about whether she is optimistic or mm. pessimistic about love when she's writing those interlinking thoughts in between her um, her chapters. There's the bit in the episode in Atlantic City where she basically, Carrie kind of says like, it's her sort of Carrie's Andrea Dworkin moment, isn't it? Where she kind of yes! Very, oh my God, it so is. She very briefly just decides that like, no cock here, please. Thank you. I'm done mm. with all of it. Done with men. It continues uh, with in that episode with Charlotte's meltdown about age and about, yeah, that kind of lack of hope and lack of faith. I also think it's very present in that that editor, Enid, when in Carrie's book launch episode where Carrie thinks that she has it all and Enid says the key to having it all is stop expecting it to look like what you thought it was going to look like. And then I think this theme is wrapped in a beautiful bow in the last episode of season five, which is one of my favourite favourites of all time. That a recurring motif of that episode is a song by Peggy Lee called Is That All There Is? Now, this song is incredibly important to me. I first started listening to it when I had a very bad breakup in my 20s and I listened to it on repeat until I started feeling human mm. again. And it is now the song that I prescribe to anyone going through heartbreak. I find it medicinal, this song. And it is about the serenity in accepting the disappointments in life. That's really mm. what that song is about. And that's why it's such an iconic song and such a huge hit, that it's about accepting that life will fall short of your expectations. And the chorus of it is, if that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have the ball if that's all there is. And that sounds mm. kind of gloomy, but it's actually a, a really inspiring song, I think, that's just about kind of accepting, yeah, the darkness and the disappointment in life. And I think that it's definitely no coincidence that that is the final parting message mm. of this entire series. Oh, very good. Okay, you give me yours. A great novel. Um, honestly, I like. I think you. I completely agree with you. This is the great American novel. The 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 only sort of addendum I have to that is I think there's this great this real battle in this season of wisdom versus cynicism, right? Yeah, and you could almost feel because something I really like about this show and something that gets ignored a lot is that the yes, you know. Darren Starr and Michael Patrick King are both gay men, but that writer's room was almost entirely straight women. And most of them were single for most yeah. of the writing of this show. And they talk about this and they've given interviews about this and how, you know, there's this great story in, in Sex and City and Us about how, um, because they shot the a lot of the show in Queens and they did a lot of the pre-production in Queens, 
and all of the girls who wrote the show lived in Manhattan, there would be this van that came around to all of their apartments every morning and they would literally get into the van, talk about their dates the night before and by the time they yeah. got to the writer's room, they had basically whole new plot beats and arcs and ideas yeah. for men. Yeah. And, which is something, which is the kind of trivia that just really gets my heart racing when I just... Me too. It makes me really emotional when I hear about just like women hanging out and it becoming art, you know? No, I'm the same. And do you know what? I really realised that last year when I was reading the... Um, diaries emma thompson's diaries when mm. she was making the film sense and sensibility and there were all these beautiful pieces of trivia about the relationships on set the conversations that were happening on set the conversations that were happening between um crew and cast and editorial um the socializing on set offset what emma thompson was going through in her personal life and i remember reading it and as someone who wants to make tv and film this huge penny drop where I was like, oh, this is the lifeblood of a piece of art. Yeah. All this stuff yeah. matters. This is the this is the bodily fluid of it. This is the DNA. This is the connective tissue. This is the body of the work. Mm. The work is only like the skin. Like that's the to extend the metaphor to breaking point. That's <laughs> that's the kind of aesthetic organ that you see, but like the thing that really keeps it alive and keeps it pumping that it is all these relationships and conversations that happen with the people that are making it. I, I, I completely agree with you. And that stuff makes me, I get so invested in that, but I get so invested in particular when it's a group of women who come together and make something. Because me like, too. this is a tangent and we're kind of having a bit of our own Andrea Dworkin moment, but like, <laughs> you know, as, as women, we don't really get these, like, we don't get our real Paris in the twenties, you know, because that was, yeah. most, that was mostly men, you know, we don't get a Renaissance. We don't get these things. Like when is like a great historical time when lots of women came together of independent means and made art together it's now yeah. like and so yeah. it was like when when like Greta Gerwig made Little Women I could not get enough of like podcast interviews of her just talking about that process you know it's just it really thrills me when I just hear about like women with like great artistic relationships inspiring each other and like totally agree it really just lights me up and and to go back to this sort of the fabled the van that these female writers were getting in every morning you know they were growing up alongside the characters you know they were all in their late 20s or early 30s when when they started this show and most of them stuck around for a few seasons and um they were at the same point where they're just like we're so sick of this we've been dating in manhattan we're and there's this, this sense that comes in the several times in the show with several of the characters where they're just like i can't I can't stomach this anymore. I can't be hurt again. I can't be disappointed mm. again. I can't go on another bad date again. There's this like several moments where it's like, first of all, Carrie in Atlantic City where she's like, I can't do this. And she sort of is becoming kind of bitter. And then there's Charlotte who, you know, she's has the thing where she kind of wants to meet someone, but she sort of can't because she's so wrapped up in the Mrs. McDougal of it all. And then even mm. like Samantha is like, she goes to San Francisco just because she's she's kind of having an existential crisis. Like she feels like she's done everything and there are no surprises mm. left. And it's exactly as you said, it's, um, is, is that all there is kind of thing. They feel yeah, like, is that all there is? Yeah. yeah. It's, I think that's so powerful with Samantha and it's almost in the ellipsis where you, where you can gather the most information from mm. Samantha's character this season. It's the things that she's not saying. And one of the like most telling 
lines and most vulnerable and emotionally open lines that she gives is in the blowjob episode where Mm. she gives a blowjob to the Worldwide Express guy. She says to Carrie when they they have an argument about it and then they reconcile and she says to Carrie, since that fucking Richard, I don't even know, you know, who I am am anymore. anymore. Yeah. And it's like just so... It's so telling, just that yes. that one line of this woman of how she's not talking about it, but it is bubbling underneath. Yeah. And I think that's something that you really do feel with women who a lot of actually this series, the moments in these episodes that are really poignant. I think about the Nina Katz episode is looking at the repercussions of what it is to have been single for twenty years, basically. Mm. When you're single for a long time, you do amass a lot of disappointing experiences and mm. they do and you don't talk about them all the time but they weigh heavy and they weigh heavy here as well because it's like this continued conversation is like are we cynical are we bitter and there's like there's even a bit where Charlotte says to Carrie in that um, episode where they go to that kind of Elizabeth Gilbert Brene Brown affirmations <laughs> type thing and, uh, and, and Carrie's making fun of it and Charlotte's like you're becoming bitter and she says it in this very like way of like you really need to yeah yeah because it's very it's very easy to be bitter you know especially if you have the life experience to back it up you know totally it's the easiest route to take it's the big challenge i think of being single in your 30s and beyond i mean let alone how do i have any right to complain about it let alone people in their 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s who are single it's the easiest route to take Mm. to say no not for me don't want to do this going to complain about it going to yeah. be cynical about it close myself off you have to resist it it's the equivalent of like um just complaining about the young you know it's like one of those things where it's it's like it's so easy there will always be material but it's just much more chic to be hopeful and kind you know and it always yeah, will be totally totally with that i think we've decided that because often when we do this show um these series are so big that we just sort of like flit around and It'll be things like, we'll end up, you know, talking for 20 minutes about, like, big hating cabs. But then, like, nah, cabs are bullshit. Cabs are bullshit! <laughs> but then, like, not mention the existence of Stanford Blatch. Yeah, exactly. I think you've got a really real opportunity. We've got a real opportunity here. Yeah, because lest we forget, next season is 20 episodes. Yeah, yeah. So that's going to be a real whistle-stop tour. So for this season, because it's only eight episodes, we're going to go through every single one. We're just going to pop through them. There's really no big arc theme discussion after that. It's just we're going to go through every one. We're going to tell you what we like about them. Yeah, love it. Great idea. Let's start with episode one, Fleet Week. I love Fleet Week. I love it. (laughs) What is it? Like, what literally is Fleet Week? Because I love how we're all supposed to just know (laughs) that there are lots of sailors around and you get get to fuck them. And it's like Halloween for single women and you just go around. Like, it's meant... What is it? Like... I think it's that. I think it's that. (laughs) It's that. It's that. Sailors dock and you get to fuck them. But, like, these sailors are like, with the exception of the one that Charlotte shows her boobs to, they're like 18. <laughs> they are so young. I know, and I find it very horny. They look younger than the men in the Valley of 20-something guy episodes. Do you know what I mean? Those guys at least look old enough to vote and have jobs. Like, these guys, 
I don't know. I tell you what, I want to do horrible things to that little cherub-faced boy who's like, you remind me of my mom. (laughs) (laughs) I love that they're all so young. It's a part of the whole thing. Yeah. Do you not you don't like it? No, it's not that I don't like it. It just it's sort of like it it's not that I feel like protective of these 18-year-old boys or anything. It's just it felt like odd. <laughs> like how what do you think about Louis Leroy? Do you think Lewis, he looks too young? I think he yeah, he looks 19. Do you not think? No. I think he's beautiful. I think he's a gorgeous, gorgeous man. And I the, the episode actually I love this episode, and it's a testament to how strong this season is that it's my least favourite one of the, in the batch. Yeah, me too. Because she's such a fucking idiot. <laughs> it's like she is so embarrassing in this episode. Yeah, it's, but it's, it's indefensible. It's so clangery. It's, yeah, yeah. It's so it's it's clangor after clangor. This whole thing from the get go, she is annoying. This thing of like, mm, I'm dating the city. <laughs> the city's my boyfriend. <laughs> I hate I'm dating the city. It's so embarrassing. I'm dating the city is very my blog in 2004 yeah i think we'll get this is included in our clangers which we will get to in rigorous detail but that moment when she's just decided she's going to have this like cinematic romantic day where she's going to be on her own and she's going to be this like manhattan manic pixie dream girl in a rainbow skirt and she starts talking it starts raining and she goes for cover under an awning oh my god and she starts talking to a stranger the thing is the writers do puncture it very well like she's being oh it's really funny yeah she's being her most unbearable in this episode in terms of her thinking that she's being like cutesy and charming and you know kind of ingenue age 36 (laughs) and uh, she's never ever got rid of ingenue complex she thinks she's amelie in this episode that's exactly what she thinks but you know as we said before hard relate baby (laughs) oh yeah oh no the only reason this makes me squirm so much is that i have absolutely been there particularly as a freelancer um in your first in the first year or two of you freelancing there's always the thing of like hmm I'm going to the Tate. Anytime I'm in a gallery or a museum on my own, I basically take in none of the art because I just imagine what everyone's thinking about me is a single woman walking around with a hat on, looking at the art. I'm I'm the exact same. <laughs> I hate myself in galleries so much. I'm so, it's like masturbating I'm in public. So it's awful. I'm pleased with myself. <laughs> I know. I'm this, oh my God. I remember one day I was... I uh, was having one of those that are like, oh, wow, it's just me in the city days. It's a Wednesday afternoon and I'm taking myself to the Tate. I went to the Tate and there was like one of those little groups that goes around and like they talk to about the paintings or whatever. And I started like just sort of following the group, just trailing behind and like, wow, hearing about Gauguin and all all the shit. And uh, really, really in my head about like, I wonder... All the all these pensioners are thinking, who is that lovely young girl? <laughs> That's what they're thinking. And then this man turned around to me and he just said, you know you have to pay to be on this. <laughs> That's so good. She starts speaking to this man under the awning and she says to him, if we were in a French movie, we'd fall in love. Now, what did she say? I love the rain. And then she says, if we were in a French movie, we'd fall yeah, in love. And he, he does. just, he doesn't respond. 
And then increasingly, not only does he not respond, he just looks absolutely repulsed by this (laughs) this woman in a mad rainbow skirt, (laughs) chatting shit at him, chatting breeze in his face. And then he just runs off to get away from her. It's so good. And also things like... It's so funny. She goes to the Guggenheim and the Guggenheim's closed. She goes... Mm. Uh, the rain, like she goes to a cafe to eat on her own, and then there's this like mad woman um, talking nonsense, and she her hair's wet, and she looks like a drowned rat. So I do think that actually it is, even though she is being so nauseating in that episode, the writers do a very good job of being like, by the way, we know she's being nauseating. I know, yeah, no, I th- and I think again that's one of my often revisited sort of defenses of this thing of this show, which is the show always knows when she's being annoying. Always. And then it's like this whole thing where like, oh, my boyfriend isn't nice. My boyfriend in the city isn't nice. And uh, he kicked my ass today. And then they go to the party, the Fleet Week party. And she has like this lovely, sexy, brilliant dance with Lewis from Louisiana. And he's so gorgeous. Oh, he's so he's like, gorgeous. He's like boy band gorgeous. Like he looks like he's he's just come in from like five. <laughs> not not five. No. I literally couldn't remember any boy band names. I was like, who's a boy band? That, that makes you sound incredibly old. <laughs> five. five. That was rogue. <laughs> <laughs> Way to lose all our Gen Z listeners. Sorry. They use music so well in this season. And I think the use of that Al Green song, Can't Get Next to You, is so fucking Mm. hot. When he dances with her. Oh, so good. He's like kissing her hands Mm. and her body as he's dancing with her. And she's obviously a trained dancer, so she just moves so beautifully. It's the fittest scene. Um, And then we get to the fire escape and they're having the sexy chat. No, my worst bit of that is when... (laughs) Just standing on the fire escape, this poor baffled man. And she says, say Lewis from Louisiana. Do you believe, what does she ask? She asks, do you believe everyone has a great love or something? <laughs> oh, no, wait. How many great loves do you think you a person gets? Say Lewis. And he goes, one if you're lucky. And then she's leans in as if she's about to kiss him and then leaves. And then the voiceover is, if you only get, you know, one great love, mine is New York. I can't have nobody talking shit about my boyfriend. It's like, oh gosh. I think I think that that episode is called Anchors Away. And I think it's called Anchors Away because of the fucking clangers that get dropped are like literally anchor heavy. <laughs> like it's just like, right on the ocean floor. <laughs> There is also a much subtler story in this episode that slightly gets lost, but I think is beautifully tracked through the whole series, which is Samantha coming to terms with the fact that one of her best friends is now a mother. Mm. And I think that is a real relationship difficulty that is very, very rich and interesting. And I'm I'm glad that that they and it really is tracked very well throughout the series and I'm glad that they delved into it because I think a lot of women particularly childless women or women who've chosen not to have their life ruled by infants and domesticity like a character like Samantha Mm. I think that you know particularly for a single mother her domestic life 
and her life as a parent obviously impinges on her social life. There's no way that it can't, even as someone as privileged and, and rich and independent as Miranda, who has lots of childcare, it still very much feels like Brady is a character in this series. Mm, mm. I completely agree. And I also think it's really interesting because in this episode, it begins with like, Samantha's kind of visibly bored by by anything Miranda saying about Brady and uh and she sort of like stuffs her in a cab after they go sh- um after brunch and it's it's just very brusque and 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 it's, it it feels very hard it would be very hard and it's also it's very nice as well because like up until this point in the show like Miranda and Samantha's dynamic is very like very it's very spiritually aligned kind of thing Definitely. like they're not yeah. alike as people in terms of their choices but in terms of their sense of humor they they always laugh at each other's jokes and that is consistently like in the moment where like charlotte or carrie is like oh you're being insensitive or like you're oh that's too far like miranda and samantha consistently really amuse each other and so for that dr- that like drift to begin like it's really hard because you can tell that samantha's one of those women and like no judgment that like who when a friend has a baby they kind of stop being so much of a friend do you know what I mean because it's like look I've made choices that I don't want that sort of thing in my life and I'm just kind of subtly gonna start moving on but like that's never going to be an option for this particular set of friends and it's really interesting watching that collision you know so I want to move on to episode two which is I I love it so much because it's it opens on Carrie as a columnist not having anything to write about and like just like sitting at her laptop absolutely just not feeling it men as socks our men socks we've all had those uh, it's weeks. one of the few meta moments of the of the series isn't it and you and I have are both columnists and although you're an agony aunt columnist now just slightly different so you'll always have something to write about but you were a dating columnist for years and that it is so much harder a job than anyone ever gives it the credit for. You've got to provide a, uh, it's a serial. You've got to provide a serial of your life. Mm. Tune in next week. This is what happened. And even as an active single person like Carrie is, there are some weeks where you're just busy and you've got nothing to update anyone on it's really relentless there's a reason why most dating columns don't they expire after about two years it's interesting because it sort of puts episode one into context of like this whole spiel that she begins the season with like i'm dating the city the city's my boyfriend it feels like something she came up with in a column in desperation and now she's like okay this is the line I'm going to be the city dating girl. Yeah. I'm dating inanimate objects, girl. And by episode two, she's like, I'm dating socks. <laughs> and it really feels like the manic choices of a writer with nothing going on. I totally have done that. That's so well observed. When I don't, when I never had something to write, I'd be like, in praise of jumpers or like, oh, do you know what I God. mean? Yeah, or seasons. Yeah. Something like, like just so nebulous just like 800 words about why i love oh god i actually did do this for star 800 words about why i love the blossom in spring or whatever it's basically it just screams of a writer who's got fucking nothing to write about i know and everyone knows and then they had this whole thing where uh she she was 
she was writing about in search of the perfect French fry, which is so relatable. And like Samantha reveals that she doesn't read the column, which I love. <laughs> I don't think that that's, you know, when Carrie looks kind of shocked. Mm. What do you feel about that? I feel like I don't expect my friends to read my weekly column. Do you? No, not, I don't think any of my friends read my column. No, unless I send it to them. I don't think anyone reads it. And I'm fine with that. I don't really want them to. <laughs> Gavin definitely doesn't. Gavin has absolutely no clue what happens on my keyboard every day. No, no clue. <laughs> he just knows the rent's get, rent gets paid. And I like it that way. Um, I, I love also, we get Carrie's editor, Dave Manning. You get the feeling in that exchange, that sort of grumpy exchange between Carrie and her editor that over her possibly 10 year, I would say, 10 year as a dating columnist, they have gone for mm-hmm. one terse lunch. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Oh, I really, I really believe the awkwardness of it. And she just hasn't returned his calls because she thinks that he's going to fire her because her columns have been so shit lately. And he's like, yeah, they want to turn your columns into a book. Return my calls. Go fuck yourself. Goodbye. (laughs) Love it. So believable. And then she has like a meeting with her, like these two publishers. And, um... One of them is Amy Sedaris, and I can't remember the other woman, but she is a great comic actress, and I just love those women so, do so I. much. They're so hyper and weird. I love them. They've got great publisher energy. And do you know what? This is another one of those episodes where the theme... Theme? Mm. Love the theme. Ding, ding, ding. Um, the little theme. The theme is done with such a light, elegant touch. And the whole episode is about the notion of faith. Yes. And it just runs through it like a stick of rock. It's just done so well. It's like that S&M episode back in series two. Mm. And they explore faith through Brady's christening that Steve insists on that uh, Miranda is sceptical about. It runs through with Carrie's book and being asked to decide whether she kind of speaks to optimism or pessimism when it comes to love. And it runs through with Charlotte going to these... (laughs) Brene Brown, Elizabeth Gilbert talks. Yes. That talk is so believable. That woman in the grey... So believable. The grey trouser suit and even the, the like, blonde Meg Ryan cut. And the fact that when when there's a roving mic at the event and Charlotte starts opening up, she crouches down on the stage... Oh. And looks at her really intently. I hear fear. I hear doubt. You're so right with the thing of faith bleeding through every element because it's it's there with Samantha as well, where she gets back with Richard, and oh, yeah, of course. she has to sort of. It's the thing we said in the last episode, which is um, you know, when you start a new relationship with someone who's hurt you before, it has to be a new relationship, and you can't bring that baggage to it or else you'll just drive yourself crazy and so she has to have faith in in Richard the sadist and she sort of she sort of is constantly testing him and she brings him to the christening and she's so convinced he'd never come with her and he does I mean we hate Richard right but he does come with her (laughs) but oh my god I'm saving the most important part of this episode for me for right now because I really want to just fucking get my steak knife into it But this is the episode where we meet Mary Brady for the first time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And who is Steve's mother. And as Miranda says, you know, you didn't have a mother the entire time we were going, yeah, and now suddenly we're christening our baby to satisfy her. 
and she's so perplexed because like mothers are just not a thing in her life and like Magda is already this person who wants to be a mother figure and and Miranda doesn't want her to be which is very interesting considering she is the only character who's explicitly lost their mother yeah and then there's these mother figures that then come into her life I find very interesting and so the first time she meets Mary Brady Steve is helping her out of a car in Queens and or is it I don't know maybe it's Brooklyn and it's raining and she has like a little rain hood on the kind you get from like Poundland and she's wearing like a raincoat and the first thing she says to Miranda is like oh you're so fancy and I just it, the way she delivered that actress absolutely she's amazing. My heart. Yeah, she's so good that actress. Oh, you're so fancy. Yeah, and uh, and she starts sort of like talking, and she's a little like she starts going on about you know she hasn't met Brady yet, and her elder son Jackie had a baby who died, and he doesn't talk to the wife. She's not very friendly. You know, it's it's this sort of long kind. It's a sort of monologue of an extremely nervous woman. Who's been drinking? Yeah. Like and and Miranda's so perplexed and and she says to Steve, you know, has she been drinking? And see, like, ah, a couple of beers, you know. And it's like, I hesitate to say it because I don't want to become too much of a catchphrase, but it's very a play. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different play to the McDougals are coming for supper, but it is nonetheless a little bit of a play. It is, you know. Yeah, she's she's everything she says is tinged with tragedy, and I think. We've talked about the the class tensions between between Miranda and Steve in series two, but there's also something about the fact that she's just wittering and she's so emotionally open mm. that just makes Miranda sets her teeth on edge. It's really uncomfortable to watch, yeah. but it feels very real. It, it must that thing of like you know someone you've never met has a laminated picture of your baby in their wallet. It must be this kind of strange thing, but. I just, it really breaks my heart. I, every time I watch it, I'm like, well, why hasn't she met Brady yet? Why hasn't Steve brought him round? Like, he sees Brady. I don't, it really, it really makes me really angry that Steve isn't a good son. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think he probably is. I love, I love that actress. I think she's wonderful. Which brings us right on too unless you have anything more to say on that episode no the atlantic city episode episode three we're just it's just banger after banger it really is i love the atlantic city episode and looking at the shared doc here in front of me i'm struck by what you've written which is how joyful the atlantic city trip is with its sort of cheapness and it's you know weird great bad clothes yeah and like miranda's cardigan and like them on the coach trip getting the polaroid how brilliant and beautiful and fun it is compared to the absolute hollow tragedy of the abu dhabi holiday oh totally it's apples and oranges isn't it and it's also this this episode is underpinned by great you know emotional panic that I understand so well which was basically all of my 20s with my poor friends which is Carrie feeling like the group is drifting apart mm. that's the thing yes it's very everything I know about love this episode yeah that's the thing that yeah. that kind of propels like all that other fun trashy silly stuff that's happening over the top the thing that really uh gives it velocity narrative velocity is that you really do feel that Carrie is stressed out 
that they are changing, they are growing up and their friendship group is drifting. I've had that feeling. It's very, very scary when you feel like Mm. the, why do the people who I deem to be the most important people in my life, they seem not to be concerned about the fact that things are visibly changing. Why are they not worried about that? Yeah. Oh, it's so, it's so great. And like, it's bit also, it starts off though, with Carrie's big love the sesh energy. Yeah. It's so love the sesh, isn't it? And we've said this in earlier episodes that anyone can free, or particularly the UK and Ireland will forgive anyone as long as they love the sesh. <laughs> and that is a big part of the reason why we can consistently forgive Carrie Bradshaw. She loves the sesh and she'll do anything for it. <laughs> so why do they end up in Atlantic City? It's just because she's so desperate for the, all of them to spend Charlotte's birthday together. Yes, because they want to spend it all together. Um, Samantha's already promised to Richard that weekend to go to one of his hotels in Atlantic City and she ends up bringing the girls along. And it's this thing of like, they all have different priorities now where it's like Miranda just wants to go back to her hotel room and sleep because this is like her first weekend away from Brady. Charlotte just kind of either, first she's sort of in denial about her birthday and then she kind of wants to meet someone and flirt and feel sexy and feel cute. Uh, Samantha wants to patrol Richard and Carrie just wants them all to be together and they just mm, she cannot mm. it's like herding cats the entire episode yeah it, feels... yeah it is it so is it's like they're all on a different holiday yeah yeah and like it is that thing of like I, this is a conversation you and I had once a long time ago and I wonder if you even remember it where we were talking about when we go on holidays with our friends mm. um, and particularly if it's like more, one or two or maybe three friends together where we um, can't relax until something goes wrong because I don't know it's a very it's a very uh, difficult energy to describe because like when I'm on holiday with girls I just want everything to be so lovely for us all together and I want us to be making these memories that are we're going to look back on when we're old and, and like and I'm so palpably aware that like I think because I live with a man and because I don't have this sort of, you know, lady house share situation or anything and, and I, look, we have to really treasure this and it has to be nice and we we have to be in the nicest restaurant and yeah. we're going to have... the And like I, and I can always feel myself like trying to establish private jokes really yeah, hard yeah. on the first day. Yeah. Like, oh, it's, that's, that's Miguel in the taxi again. Miguel who <laughs> loves us kind of thing. And yeah. like, do you know what I mean? That sort of quite cringy over the top energy. And then something will go wrong. Like someone will like leave their bag somewhere and I'll just relax because I'm like, oh, it's okay. We've got a story. <laughs> We've got a story. I remember you and I having that conversation and you articulated yourself so well. It's like you're you're um, just desperately trying to build some mythology because you feel like mythology will make you more important to them and it will make this holiday more important to all of you collectively. I have been the single girl who has gone away and has desperately wanted a story just to escape my life at home that feels like, you know, my love life's not going that well. When you go to a new place as a single person, there is this like promise of newness and being a new person and potentially having a really hot love affair and and being able to sort of live off that when you go back home. And it's very difficult to try and achieve that if your other friends aren't vibing 
on, on. Yeah. I've had yeah. I've had it a couple of times. It's really annoying. I, I re <laughs> I actually really sympathise with Charlotte. I had it I had it like I'm not gonna say where we went. I had it when I went to a city with someone and they were just not into that. Are you talking that, about that bit with Charlotte where they meet the guys in the bar and she looks really gorgeous and, and like kind of skanky and really sexy? Yeah. And they want to buy them a drink and Carrie's like, no, I don't want to fucking buy a drink with these randos yeah. who we're never going to see again. I want to talk to you, my friend. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's like, oh, I get everyone's point of view here. Totally. Like, Charlotte wants to feel sexy. I more get Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I'm not like that now, but I do understand that inclination of like, I want a story. I want an adventure. I need to feel new. I need to feel like I've collected something. I need yeah. to feel like I can have a no strings thing here. And I, yeah, I hard relate. Uh, and then like, and then it sort of cuts to this great moment with them on this sort of weird little trolley trip outside and the sun is going down, which is great actually because it's been interior shots the entire yeah. time. And it's been like the, the casino thing of it always being 2 a.m. in a casino. And then they go out and it's like 5.45 yeah. p.m., you know? Yeah. And the sun's going down and Charlotte has to wear this like little like little pink kind of juicy couture yeah. sort of pink <laughs> zippy over her slutty dress. And, uh, and Carrie does her thing where she's like, well, look, you know men die first anyway so let's just have each other let's just vibe let's just vibe for the next 40 years and Charlotte's like no I don't want to I don't want to skip the hard stuff yeah. because that's life you know that's children that's babies God, that's it's so true it's like such a it's so difficult when when uh single friends are on different planes with that stuff yeah I've been there so many times I've I've been the Carrie and I've also been the Charlotte and it's very, very difficult to mesh when you're out having experiences together if one of you is convinced that it's not it's it's not worth even venturing into the mess of romance and the other one has you know is still really looking for that it, it can it can be it can, yeah. can cause a lot of tension that's so interesting. I'd never even really thought of that before because. As you know, I've been married to Steve Brady for a hundred years, and <laughs> I just sort of—I <laughs> just sort of assume that, like, when single girls are out together, they they have the same vibe, kind of thing. No, and that's they so don't. Stupid. Yeah, I've just realised how stupid that is. Yeah, you know? it, can, it can cause issues. And as you said, the thing is, is everyone's right. But the problem is, is like you can't go and vibe and be a single girl and collect those experiences on your own really you have to have someone yeah. doing it with you it reminds me of a day where we were very much on the same vibe where we were in greece and we were desperate to have like a bit of an experience <laughs> and uh and you know I, like basically i i love being a tourist into being a single girl like so i'll like i'll like pretend i'm single up to the last minute just so like i can be somebody else's wing woman and just talk to talk to the ugly friend you know i'm fine with it it makes me happy um <laughs> Yeah, you've got great wing woman energy. Um, and I remember like this waiter in Greece sort of like chatted me up a bit when you were in the loo and he was like, you know, your friend, you know, you and your friend should come down to this beach party thing we're having after this. And I was like, okay, sailor. And then you came back and I explained the situation to you and we were like, yeah. And then we both looked each other in the eye and we were like, nah. <laughs> nah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, neither of us actually want to do this. We just want to know we can. <laughs> oh my God. I've also just remembered from that holiday, 
very Fleet Week vibe. I've completely forgotten about this memory and you've just reminded <gasps> me of it. I know it. what you're about to say! <laughs> of when we became absolutely obsessed with all these super yachts that were... <laughs> were port. docked in the port and we were just hell bent we were like we need to get on one of those fucking boats i just we just need 10 minutes in one of those boats how hard can it be we've got to get on it and we <laughs> decided to kind of just mosey around <laughs> looking like a couple of old whores looking like a couple of old whores with our fucking sunburns <laughs> And our beers in hand. And we just saw that there was a couple of guys, a couple of 60-something guys on their boat. And we just started... Like like toads, like slippery toads on the yachts. And we started chatting to them. And we were like, so, can we come on the boat? And they were very, like, evasive as to why we couldn't come on the boat. But we were like, so where, where are your boys setting sail off tomorrow? <laughs> and anyway, this, this third bloke, we just stood there chatting to them for, I would say, upwards of half an hour. And then their, third, their friend completely ruined it for them and basically dropped the bomb that they were cabin crew. <laughs> It was so awkward. It was that weird sort of like... And also, you know, English not these people's first language, so... But it was still that sort of like awkward energy of like, we don't want to be shallow and walk away and and prove to you that we're not interested in you unless you own this yacht. But also, you've just lied to us for 20 minutes. (laughs) So there's... Everyone's at fault. (laughs) Everyone's a dick. (laughs) That's very our Atlantic City episode. The moral of this story is if you're a single woman and you want to do a Charlotte in Atlantic City and you need a wing woman, call Caroline O'Donoghue. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Uh, We're spending too long on this episode and there's more to go, but I just want to finish it on one. It isn't a a carry clanger. It is the show's clanger that it drops all by itself. And it is... Carrie realizing that maybe she does want to fall in love after all because she sees a slightly older couple on a bench talking about the sunset and how Ooh. she's going to go swimming and she has her swimsuit on under her clothes and uh and she goes oh I'm just going to watch the sunset and she goes oh you and your pink sky and it's like it's like a Hallmark movie. It's really bad. It's really bad. It's, it's really not subtle. And it feels like um what happened was that the scene got written quite quickly. <laughs> they had a limit of daylight left in Atlantic City. And they they basically had two takes. Yeah. Because yeah. it feels really awkward. Those actors have never met. It felt like they were two Getty images stuck models who were given dialogue (laughs) they needed more time to warm up episode four is the famous um the the planning of carrie's book cover where uh she also walks in on samantha giving a blowjob to the worldwide express guy where do you want to start with the book cover or the blowjob i think the blowjob i think is the most interesting thing because i feel re watching this that it's that that argument between Carrie and Samantha where Carrie kind of overreacts 
to walking in on Samantha giving the Worldwide Express guy a blowjob. And then Samantha's very jumpy about it. And then Carrie's very defensive that she wasn't judging her, although she admits later that she was judging her. And re-watching it, I do think, God, that is well-tracked because I think that's an argument that's been brewing for five years, for five series. Like, yeah. every time you hear Samantha saying something crude or bawdy or she's being, you know, kind of careless or promiscuous, there are all these raised eyebrows around the coffee shop table and you feel mm. like there are so many things that they're that either they're like privately whatsapping about or they're just like mm. oh we're just accepting this as our friend Samantha who's behaving in this very untraditional way and it it, it they would have opinions on Samantha's promiscuity yeah yeah of course, and it's a thing. It's it's trekking back to what we said in the last episode, which is that like it often feels like Samantha's storyline take like plays in a different universe. Yeah, where like the majority of the girls, their relationships are quite grounded. Like their problems are real, and like lots of times Samantha just is like this like orbit. Is like she's she's like the satellite out in space, like in yeah. a whole different dimension. And there's different music, there's different colors, there's different like camera setups for Samantha. It feels in many ways like a different show. And it's like interesting. They almost make those two shows collide. Yeah. On this on this episode, and I kind of wish because I do think you're right in that like it has been brewing the whole. They had they had to have this eventually of like don't think I don't see you making your little jokes and you're raising your eyebrows and I I know you people judge me kind of thing. However, I do and I'm not like. I do wish they gave her a bit more of a, like, quite literally, a leg to stand on, you know? <laughs> because, like, if we think about it, in, if we if we take Samantha out of her high-octane, weird, mad world, like, if I was, if I came to your house one day and I knocked on the door and you were blowing the Amazon Prime guy, like... <laughs> I think you'd find it funny. I don't think, I really don't think you'd react like that. Maybe I'm overestimating you. Like I deliver it, like like a random person who's called to your door with a package and suddenly Dolly's blowing them. He's not a random Amazon Prime guy. He's my Amazon Prime guy. Tuesdays and Fridays. I already feel so defensive like I've already done this. <laughs> I know! <laughs> I don't, like, I want to be as, like, sex positive as, as you know, the next lady or whatever. But I feel, I would be like, I would, I would, like, go, oh, God. Or I would do the same thing, right? I wouldn't stand there, obviously. <laughs> I would, like, oh, God, ah. And then I'd probably, like, go down to a cafe or something until you called me. <laughs> yeah. And you were done. And then I would go back to your house and I would be like, are you okay? Because that didn't feel like a thing a healthy person does. <laughs> God, would you, would you really think that? I don't think I would feel that. I don't know. Am I, I being really narrow-minded? I feel like I'm going to get like lots of emails now. No, like... no, no. I think... Um, let me just really interrogate this. Is there anything a friend has done sexually that's really made me worry? The, the thing that they do so masterfully in this episode is... You know, you and I have talked quite a lot about... We don't like complaining about Carrie because we mm. love Carrie and we don't like whingers. Um, <laughs> but there is an interesting dichotomy with with Carrie that she is actually pretty conservative, I think, mm. with her ideas of love and sex and relationships. And she's meant to be a sex columnist. She's meant to be very progressive about these things. 
and she on numerous occasions is unveiled as being someone who is fairly narrow-minded I think about about how women should and men should lead their lives and lead their sexual lives and their romantic lives and I think what's interesting is she pretends she's cool with it and then she reroutes that judgment into having an issue with how Samantha is styling her for her book cover and the line Mm. that I think is so unforgivable is Samantha dresses her up for a shoot and puts her in this like very um, Jane Mansfield retro, which is so in keeping Mm. with, I think, Samantha's idea of sexuality, as we've talked about before. If she's the woman who like read her father's Playboys when she was growing up, Mm. she puts her in this like marabou robe. And the line that kills me is when Carrie says, you and I have very different ideas of what sexy is. That is an incredibly Mm. very loaded loaded judgmental cutting line and then samantha says uh oh yeah then she says uh if i walked in on you blowing your worldwide express guy and carrie yeah. says well that is something i would never do and kim cattrall does such a good dramatic performance where she's like there that's the judgment and i think that is really yeah well rerouted because actually it's Mm. like Carrie pretending that she thinks that Samantha can't style her when really she's kind of expressing 10 or 15 years of judgment on how Samantha conducts her own sex her own sexuality yeah it's an interesting one I also think a very interesting thing is going on in this episode is the thing with the book cover at the beginning when they show her what they have in mind like a mock-up and it's Carrie's head on a nude body. And the not only is it like a jarring image, but it's also a tiny body. Oh know? yeah, yeah. It's like it's like a like a size zero model. And I just think it, it reminded me of this moment I had at the beginning of my career where um my I was sort of going around visiting different publishers who were interested in my book and uh they gave me like a little goodie bag of like you know little nice little themed gifts that went and went with the manuscript as they saw it and it was very cute stuff it was like oh here's a pen here's this here's that and there was a pair of knickers in there with the (laughs) uh with the working title for the manuscript on the ass which was weird to begin with right it's weird for people you don't know to give you a customized knicker yeah and the knickers were a size eight, <laughs> and I felt really, we- and I felt really weird about that. I did not sign with them over different reasons, but the knickers <laughs> didn't help. And it was sort of this thing of like, oh, you want to market, like, because it was a very commercial publisher. Yeah, I was like, oh, you want to market me, and your your sort of like um, lizard brain version of what's marketable is a size eight author yeah yeah and also that the reason why that opening scene is so good is anyone who's like professionalized their creativity knows the feeling of like oh the thing that my intention is not matching up with the intention of the people who are trying to sell me and that is a very frightening feeling like her reaction i think is very realistic that it feels like this is my most precious thing. These are my stories. This is my identity. Yeah. This is who I am. I'm entrusting you with it. And you have, com- something has got lost in translation and we are on completely different pages about what we think we're making here. It's very scary. 
It's also, I feel like it's about time because Stanford is um, in this episode and he introduces um, Marcus. We haven't talked a lot about Stanford. No, we haven't. And it's interesting because like, he's supposed to be Carrie's best friend. (laughs) They're not best friends. The thing Caroline said to me when I made her watch the film My Best Friend's Wedding. They're not best friends. <laughs> it's my my sexually tense friend. My big fake friendship. <laughs> <laughs> They're not best friends. They're just two people who flirt with each other and know each other's family. It's not the same thing. Um, but <laughs> but what do you feel really about feel... Stanford? We never really talk about Stanford, do we? No, no. I think... I have a lot of thoughts about him and I've talked a lot about him with Ryan, who is my gay friend, who um, I first watched this show the most with. Uh, I think I mentioned him in the first episode. And this thing of like, he he has a big problem with Stanford um, and it really like bums him out. And I don't, I don't blame him because I, I enjoy Stanford for the character that he is. Like I enjoy his kind of, his outfits and his sort of insecurities and his, you know, this kind of Stanfordisms. I do believe he's a kind of a fleshed out character, but I feel like him as the major gay representation for the show is like very disappointing. Yeah. Um, in terms of like, you know, and like, I don't know what I'm expecting because I think it's very easy to say 30 years out from AIDS for me to say as a millennial person, why haven't you mentioned the AIDS crisis in this show that's set in like early noughties New York with these characters who've been in New York for a long time, who are enmeshed with the gay community, who go to gay clubs, who know gay artists. How come this huge thing has never been mentioned? Um, And and then like, I I kind of have to slightly slap myself because I'm like, you know, Michael Patrick King and Darren Starr definitely, you know, if they didn't live through this thing in New York, they definitely had friends who did. Yeah. And it, maybe it was just too raw for that reality to come up in this silly show about sex. Yeah. And I think, I think about this a lot when I'm kind of writing characters and creating characters is that there is a really fine line between not airbrushing out the truth of their trauma and oppression, but yeah. equally not defining their entire character and drama yeah. so through, true. through trauma and tyranny. And I think probably at that point, the gay experience on screen and in writing was so dominated by that that maybe, maybe what they thought is like, well, we want to see someone who's fucking rich and who's, having fun yeah and he's full of life and who's promiscuous and romantic and uh wears jazzy suits and is having a real laugh and and gallivanting around town we can't speak for the creators but i do it is uh yeah i think it is a it is a really difficult tension that thing of the truth of the darkness of of an oppressed community's experience while also just allowing them to be silly and shallow and fun it's so it's so true it's such a tension and 
this thing, I think what I actually really enjoy about Stanford and what I find quite subversive about him is that he, like, like gay characters in media are in no way new. Like, they've been around yeah. in different code, coded ways for generations. And, like, in the 1920s and 30s, there was very much this kind of stock character of a slightly upper class, kind of, like, very fey man who dresses in a very dapper way. And, like, it's very coded on screen in the dialogue. Like, maybe he lives with the with the gentleman friend, kind of. It's yeah. very that. It's very confirmed bachelor, you know. And that's, yeah. a, that's very much a trope in media that's been around forever. But what I like is that Stanford fulfills that. Like, he has this sort of, like, neat kind of fey, old New York, you know, 1930s sort of gay aesthetic. But he's also a person who has sex. He has fetishes. He has kinks. He likes underwear. He goes in chat rooms. He has, like, a sexy, you know, dancer boyfriend. He gets blowjobs in the toilet, you know. And I do think that tension is really revolutionary when you think of the history of like gay men on screen in general, you know? Definitely. Something that they unpick, which is definitely an uncomfortable truth, which is Carrie at times uses Stanford like he is a glamorous accessory. Mm, mm, Having a gay best friend who is her portal into the world of queerness makes her feel interesting and fun and glamorous and she likes having a gay man doting on her and she likes taking him to things and she likes hearing about his experiences that are different Mm -hmm. to hers and it gives her an insight. And actually there is a moment in this series where he says he's talking about his new relationship and she's not really showing enough interest and he says, I've been listening to you talk about your relationships for a really long time, it's now time that you listen to me. So I do think that yeah. there's um, the gay best friend thing is interrogated very lightly, very, very lightly. And it does often just feel like throughout the series that she just sort of uses Stanford when she's exhausted everybody else. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And they like, they have, the, I, I really like their scenes when they're just drunk together and smoking in her flat. But I'm a bit like, why don't you ever go out for dinner with Stanford? You know, take Stanford for dinner. (laughs) Yeah. That's all I have to say about that. I like that he (laughs) finds happiness in this season with with Marcus. Me too. And I really like Marcus. I really like Marcus as well. And I like how, um, and we'll we'll, we'll get to it in more detail, but when they get to the final episode and everyone's being really cynical about um, Nathan Lane's character and Bitsy Von Muffling. Yeah. Marcus just says, maybe he just makes her laugh. Yeah. And it's like, oh, you know, Marcus is the only young person left in the show. <laughs> you oh, know? God. So true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's the youth correspondent for Sex in the City. He is. He yeah. is. I wish there was more Marcus, actually, because I think he's just so beautiful to look at. Oh, God. So he's nice. so gorgeous. He's so gorgeous. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does, they charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Right, so we're on, on to episode five. Yeah, we need to start rattling through, friend. <laughs> oh, episode five is when she um is the book launch. It's the book launch. It's the introduction of Jack Berger. I think Jack Berger is very triggering for a lot of women. I'm holding back. I think now's the time. Now's the time. Unleash the faucet. I think Jack Berger... Remember Corinne Fisher saying this on Guys We Fucked, and I totally agree with her. She was like... Jack Berger should be taught to girls in schools. Yes. He should be on the syllabus. It's so bad because it's every trick I've ever fought for. I know. You know? I know. What is it? What is it? Let's really dig down into it. So I think it is that he pretends that he enjoys an interesting, complicated, ambitious, Mm. flawed, successful, creative woman and actually... In practice, he likes that kind of woman as a concept. And in practice, he finds her incredibly emasculating, irritating, and slightly repugnant. And that is basically 90% of men that I've dated. Yeah. They love me on date one. It's so true. They adore me on date one. And then the minute that you actually, when it actually comes to them you know, accepting me or celebrating me or supporting me in the way that I do for them, they can't handle it at all. A quality they often tend to have is they tend to have this um, bevy of extremely fascinating uh, women who are their friends and who are the same age as them and all of their serious girlfriends are 21. Yeah, yeah, they don't like, they they, they love yeah. women. It's such a type of man that is so fabulous as a friend Mm. they are great to their best mates wives and they are great to the girls yes they're great to the girls who they don't fancy and don't want to fuck but actually when it comes to romance and sex they just need someone who reinforces how amazing they are god i'm getting so angry talking about this yeah because they're yeah because they're incredibly insecure and you know they've they've learned sort of John Cusack to the power of Woody Allen type of behavior of like, yeah, I got a thing to say, you know, I'm the insecure guy. I'm going to do my little self-hating. My novel didn't sell very well, patter. And you think like, oh God, this guy is like so self-effacing. He's so on the level, like he's so charming. He always has a thing to say. And it's like, it is that thing. It's the Chandler Bing thing, right? Of just like incredibly nervous chatter. Yeah. That has, someone has managed to repackage into sort of a John Cusack and high fidelity kind of uh, totally. thing. And it's something that I'm so fascinated by. I tried to to explore it in my first novel, Ghosts, out in paperback. <laughs> it's coming Very tonight. good. <laughs> I plugged my novel a lot in the last one, so you just go <laughs> right ahead, darling. I tr- I tried really hard to to examine this with that romantic leading ghosts of 
what it is to fall for a man who basically doesn't respect women, but who has accumulated the a language that would say otherwise. They ha- they've read the articles, they've got the female friends, they're smart, they're emotionally eloquent, and they entrap you with patter and cultural references and internet politics mm, that makes you think gosh. that you're in that makes you think you're in safe hands and you're not and actually i prefer to see my misogyny in plain sight i prefer to see a bloke with gold teeth and a 16 year old girlfriend in a motorbike <laughs> sorry that was quite a rant no, I like it. I'm living. This is great. Um, and I want to r- refrain from sort of like, I feel like we've made a good, had a good job of being like equally baffled, but also balanced by men in this series so far. And yeah. it's like, with the knowledge, like people are people and like, no. And I think what's interesting about Jack Berger is that as we see more in season six, when his sort of arc comes to an end, that he doesn't want to be this way. Like he hates no, that he's no. this way, you know? No. And, and again, like, Sorry to refer back to my novel. I really tried to do that with that character of just like really understanding that that the men who behave like this, like that they are pulled between those two things and they, mm. they hate themselves for being pulled in the wrong direction and they wish they could be the man that they want to be and their insecurities that don't allow them to be that man are all normally rooted in family dad stuff normally Mm. um and actually something that you observed that i think is so smart about burger is the fact that he is a failed novelist and yet has this house in the hamptons why does he have a house in the hamptons and you were like i think he's a trust fund kid and it's definitely like men that behave like that who want to be good men and yet like secretly yeah they don't read like like secretly they they want a a silent fawning girlfriend they it it comes from a place of like deep suffering and insecurity and like big issues with their own masculinity and you're like trust fun kid definitely like definitely definitely that's that's like a secret he's hiding that that's the thing that like gives him this aesthetic of success and virility and power it's that thing it's like it's never going to be that like classic Trey McDougal where he's like well yes of course I come from money and I I understand my place in the world and like women have a role but I have a role kind of thing it's it's never that it's always like you know hiding under the bed the fact that like his granddad owned a rubber factory in Pittsburgh and he makes a million a year you know and he just gets a million a year for no reason and he's never gonna tell anyone until like the woman he marries on the night before their wedding yeah, you know? yeah. totally totally I don't know why it has to be a rubber factory in Pittsburgh oh, it has to be it has to be there's no question in my mind it's a rubber factory in Pittsburgh Yeah, to be honest, like all my fucking ranting and complaining about him, I think he's a really interesting character. Yes, he's such an interesting character that it makes me so confused as to why the writers are so married to the burger eating metaphor. I don't get it. Okay, like I guess they, I guess they were, I don't, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Were they like, we really want someone for her 
with a fast food metaphor this season? Or do they come up with the name Jack Burger and they'd be like, oh, it'd be cute if she's constantly talking about burgers. It's I think so the first, weird. I think the first instance. And they rely on it so heavily. Do you know why I think they did it? Mm. When I re-watched this series, it was amazing to me how much when I was younger and I watched it, I was like, oh, she's met her intellectual equal. He's a novelist. Yeah. And they just fire witticisms back and forth to each other. When I oh, rewatched it... Totally it, how I thought relationships were when I was that age, yeah. But when I rewatched it and I was like watching their like, yeah, their patter, I was just like, this is not that clever or that yeah. cool and sexy. And that's not me being judgmental on the writers. I have to say, and I'm sure you have lots of thoughts on this, having now written flirting and romance mm. and chemistry it is the hardest thing to write it's really hard it's yeah. so yeah, yeah, yeah. hard to write proper chemistry so i understand why it like it does just feel a bit jarring sometimes when i watch that like back and forth between them so i wonder if they put in that metaphor to try and like amp up the cutesiness of it mm, to maybe. make it you know to make it feel like cerebral and sparky or I'm also I'm also gonna put it out there gonna shoot it out into the ether and maybe maybe a bunch of women will email me without me asking and 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 tell me I'm right or wrong but (laughs) relationships that begin with you calling each other your last names are doomed (laughs) (laughs) they're doomed that is so true fuck that might be the smartest thing you've ever said. Why is Doomed. that? Listen, Alderton. Why? Yeah. It's so Ugh. true. If it begins in that way, it's heading to hell. Yeah. When I think of the men who've broken my heart the most, most, or like, you know, just made me confused and crazy. It's all this sort of last namey, like, here's looking at you, kid bullshit. <laughs> true it's it's bad that he doesn't say that he's a girlfriend that is that's very also it really tracks with that man that he wants to have like a it's it's as well it's that thing that you know not just men do it women do it as well of like people who have relationships that are failing just trying to heat up another hob heating heating up a back hob yeah 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 one another branch to swing on to yeah do you something the journalist Eve Wiseman said to me years and years and years ago that I think about all the time? She was like, there's a certain type of man who can only have the confidence to flirt properly and call a woman by her last name, etc., etc., once they are in the captivity of a relationship. Totally. But I, like, I'm going to be utterly frank. I'm the same way. Like... I, my flirting game is absolutely on fucking point because it's a game to me. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm really like, I don't want, don't want to brag too much, but I'm very in love. Like, <laughs> so, <laughs> so like, I feel like when I get to flirt with someone that it's just like, we're in a play, you know, and like, I get to have fun. It's like a role playing situation. And then I just leave it behind me and there's no anxiety attached to it. And so yeah. I just get to feel like just sexy and powerful for 10 minutes and then I get on with my life. Yeah. Whereas like if I were ever to be put in a situation like for whatever reason my relationship didn't work out, if I was the asshole that got the big wake up call, like I would be horrible. Like I think I would be great because I'm so like comfortable and sassy with men, but like I would actually be horrible because I would actually have skin in the game. 
Uh, I love you for admitting that. But I do think that you there's a difference because you don't live with secrets. And I think that the overarching thing of a man like Berger is that they're men with secrets. Be it the rubber yeah. factory in... Have <laughs> <laughs> we connected? Or... Or the gov, or like you know, we've all met those men in media with the with the wife they never mention, mm. or that you know, like he's a man who's like not in touch with every part of who he 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 like only shows certain parts of himself to certain people to have the funnest experience within like that mm. scenario. Um, another quick note on this episode is uh, the Charlotte Trey sort of who gets the apartment thing begins. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm on Bunny's side. I'm on Bunny's side. Feminism has gone too (laughs) too far. Too far. Why should she get that flat? It's huge. It belongs to the McDougal family. It wasn't Trey's to give. They weren't married that long. They barely knew each other. Why does she get to get that flat? It seems to be, the logic the show seems to hold up is, well, Charlotte redecorated the flat, so it's hers. It's basically, Charlotte redecorated the flat, her husband had a floppy cock, and then he didn't want to have kids. Therefore, she should have a, I would imagine, $10 million apartment that's been in the family for years and years. It's absolutely unbelievable. It's like... I live in I live in a rented gaff, but I repainted the stairs. I own this house. <laughs> I'm going to tell my landlord that I own this house now. <laughs> like, excuse me? Like, I'm so not on her side for this. I'm not either. And I also think if we are to believe that the prenup was, you know, paid attention to in the divorce, then not yeah. only does she get the apartment, she gets a million bucks. A million bucks for being married for like nine months and being separated for like three of them. And also, this is the first series where I really feel the the gape of Charlotte's career. Like there's one episode where she has had lunch with like some man. She's had a lunch date, yeah. Harry Johnson V or something. And this bloke takes her back to her apartment and she says, thank you for another lovely lunch. And then they snog and he's like, I've got to get back to work. And he leaves. I'm like, she doesn't work. And she just goes for these lunches. What is Charlotte doing all day? It's fair. But maybe this is like an old part of Manhattan society that we don't really understand. Charlotte never works again. And weird. that's mad. No, that we're being judgmental. Are we being judgmental? No, I don't think we're being judgmental. judgmental. Like, how she is she filling her days? She, how is she filling her? I mean, you often see her and she's just like, you know, being a busy, you know, she's organizing the baby shower. She's organizing Miranda's mum's funeral flowers. She loves, she loves to organize bits. It's mad. She like, I'd love to see her just organising like a charity lunch every now and then, just to know that she's doing something. Right, I am sweating to get on to episode six, which is the Nina Katz episode, oh, which we've so briefly good. spoken about before in episode one. So and uh, listeners will remember it is the source of my fight with Candace Bushnell. <laughs> <laughs> 
Nina Katz is very real to me. But I mean, the thing in a way, we've talked about Nina Katz already because she's like the thing that you talked about recently of like the the writer that lives in your head that doesn't really exist and who's just a sock puppet that is animated by your own self-loathing. Yeah. Which I think yeah. is going to go down in history as one of your great quotes of all time, to be honest. <laughs> Thanks, babe. Like, Nina Katz exists and doesn't like, doesn't appear to like Carrie, but everything else that Nina Katz is and does, Carrie has invented. This yeah. whole thing of like, and just to remind people who, who haven't been listening that closely, um, Nina Katz is a woman who Carrie meets shortly after she gets a rave review from Michiko Kakutani of the... Uh, is it New York Times? I think it's New York Times. Who is this notoriously tough reviewer who gives Carrie a rave. Who is real and very famous and came out with a book like two years ago. So the fact that everyone's like quite racistly butchering her name throughout the <laughs> throughout yeah. the episode is not cool. Um, so she gets this rave review, but and I really relate to it because it's like almost all this um, residual stress that's still left over that she was going to, the energy she was going to give if she had a bad review, she gives to this random woman who gives her a kind of a weird reaction. And I really relate to that. Yeah. Of like, when you're in these moments in your career where people are really looking at you, even if all the attention is good, you still have a way of feeling like, oh no, the other shoe is going to drop eventually and people are going to come for me. And the fact that I associate that with a real millennial digital thing of like, yeah. oh no, someone someone's going to misinterpret something I've said and then come for me on social media, which I think is a real defining feature of the millennial creative person. The fact that it exists for Carrie Bradshaw, who doesn't know what a phone is, is very soothing to me. You said something to me once that I think is repurposed advice that was given to you maybe by your friend Kate. You said to me, I don't want you to become one of those women who walks around having imaginary arguments with people, with women in London who who yeah. don't know or care about who you are, but who you have decided hate you and your work. Yes, it's so true. It's so easy. And especially in, in a job where lots of people are creating, but not lots of people are mixing, like mm. writing, you know, mm. where it's all people just in their in their houses. It's very easy to create these narratives in your head where people just fucking hate you. It's yeah. crazy making, you know? And yeah. there's a whole thing with Nina Katz where it's like, first she bumps into her and it's quite random. It's like at this, at, at Marcus's dance review, which is an event we've all <laughs> gone to. Very, very relatable. Uh, everyone's gone to a thing with their theater friend and you're like, oh, I'm going to support my friend. And then it's just like... People reenacting the cell block tango, but with only two people. <laughs> Is that very relatable? <laughs> yeah, and she's like, oh, you're Carrie Bradshaw. I went out with Aiden right after you. Ooh, makes the big face, the face girl. I have to say, I do find that very triggering because beyond your thing about the... the the fact that Nina Katz is is like one of those ubiquitous you know, powerful media people that ignites her fear in Carrie that, like, she's being bad-mouthed amongst her peers. Mm. There is something very, very believable about when you've been single for a very long time, you have dated a lot of people. And we've talked about this before in the series, like, you do leave a trail of people yeah. with information about you. And 
it doesn't matter whether you have a public profile or not. It is. I hear this a lot from people who, for various reasons, have like selected dating pools. Yeah. Like, um, like maybe they're like they're either gay or they're trans or they're dating within like a select religious group or cultural group or whatever. Where it's like there's a limited amount of single people going around, and yeah. they get into and they get into like like trading card sort of stats with each yeah. other. And it, yeah. it like it must be, and I remember the thing is I remember it because when I was living in Cork, and Cork is a really small city, and I both it's a university town, and I grew up there, and I went to university there, and yeah. so like you know I I started dating when I was about fourteen, you know, and I like as I think I've said before, I was, com- I was such a serial monogamist. I just loved being in love. I was just like going through them. And so by the time I was 20, I had been out with like 20 guys. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and I remember just bumping into them all over the place, seeing that some of them were friends with each other. And I was, and I remember feeling like, oh my God, I have like created this city full of people with stories about me or who think they have stories about me. And it's, Totally. I found it so horrible and so stressful, you know? It's really stressful. It's really stressful. I find the whole Nina Katz storyline hugely triggering. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's she's so well cast as well because it's all about her face and the face she makes. And she's got yeah. such a big face. She's so expressive. Yeah. She's yeah. so expressive. So good. Um, uh, This is also, I think it, it's worth saying here, This this is mostly about Nina Katz this episode, but... It is also Bunny's very final appearance. This is the curtain call for McDonald's are coming for supper. It's so curtain call. And it it was you who recognised that her final line is very a play. Very a play. Her final... So basically it's them in the the divorce lawyer's office where we have Harry Goldenblatt. And... um, they're like squabbling over the coin collection. And then like, this is very a play. They get a telegram from Trey, who's in <laughs> Scotland. Why is Trey in Scotland? Like, does he live there now? The idea of Trey McDougall just in Edinburgh is really freaky to me. I know. I think it's just to remind the audience that there's Scottish heritage. <laughs> yeah. It must be. him. Like The idea of him starting again in Edinburgh. I love the idea of him and Natasha... Living in yeah. some huge highland pad. <laughs> Amazing. So good. And uh, it's this, It's very a play. It's very like, um, you know, oh, you can have the antique coin collection. She doesn't want the coin collection. I want what was promised. I want my apartment. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and he goes, the telegram comes in and it's like, you know, Charlotte McDougal with a lovely wife, stop. Give her anything she wants, stop. Seriously, mother, stop. <laughs> so true. It's so in keeping with the McDougals are going for supper energy because, like, any other storyline, someone would just call or Trey would appear. In fact, it's a or telegram. A te- like, are we pre war? It's so weird. <laughs> I can see it in the old Vic. I can see it in the old Vic. So and then and then like obviously that's sort of but it's so it's it doesn't even make legal sense because they're like <laughs> case closed. <laughs> but it's like the point of this case was the fact that the apartment was never traced to give. So him sending a telegram means nothing. <laughs> we already know how Trey feels. That's how plays work. That's how plays work. 
They have no internal logic. I think in the in the pl- in the play as well, it would Bunny would open the telegram and then through sonorous speakers around the old Vic Auditorium, it would be it would be Trey's voice <laughs> reading it. <laughs> wow. And then you're you're coming out after the play is over and you're putting on your coat, being like, do you think he stuck around for that live recording or they just recorded it and he went home? (laughs) And then obviously act two. And then Bunny's final line, which I think would be the penultimate scene of the play is. Alan. (laughs) Just her saying to her, beckoning her lawyer out of the room with her. Alan. I can't believe that's the final time we see. I actually can't bear it. It's too. The final. That's the last time we see a single a McDougal. Very sad. Alan. Oh, it's so good. Alan. (laughs) (laughs) I love her. The penultimate episode of season five is such a fun episode. It's so filled with moments just, oh, I love it. It is when Samantha and Carrie go to San Francisco. And this, it is, it's still amazing to me how this show got this the Abu Dhabi stuff so unbelievably wrong because they're so good at putting their totally. characters in different places and having their characters organically react to the reality of those places. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love that. Because the thing is, it's, like, it's, the, it's the train thing, but it's also the San Francisco having to open for a dog thing. And it's just... Listen, anyone who's been a writer has had to open for a dog that is more popular than them. In my experience, it wasn't a dog. It was the greatest millennial novelist of our time. Uh, when I did a book event at a book festival, Sally Rooney wasn't speaking but a girl came up to me with Sally Rooney's novel and <laughs> said to me, I could only buy one book um, and I decided to choose Sally's. Would you mind signing it for me? <laughs> no. And I point blank refused. I said, I can't. I was like, that's too insulting to Sally's work. I can't. I can't write in this book. That woman is deranged. What a crazy thing to do. I said, I better have been there. And she said, please, please rewrite (gasps) it. So I wrote, some woman out there has got a copy of Normal People and in the front it says, dear whatever, this book is much better than mine. I hope you enjoy it. Love, Dolly Alderton. (laughs) I love how you were like, that's so insulting to Sally. It's not insulting to Sally because she has the eight quid. Oh my god! Oh my! I honestly like, I would, I would like. I'm sort of wary that we do a lot of like inside, inside baseball kind of thing on this show about our careers as novelists and as journalists and the ways that the show parallels with it. But there are so many humiliations that come part and parcel with the author experience, and I have so many of them. Like, I think it's important to talk about that. Like, yeah. I'm glad that we talk about them because I think that the author experience is often depicted to be very simple and exciting and easy. Yeah. And I think it's important to be honest about the fact that it is a dream come true, but it also has its difficulties. 
oh, it's it can be really hard. Like sparsely attended book launches that like, and it's played off very charmingly in this episode that basically anyone can show up to and sometimes the wrong people do. And sometimes it's awkward, but sometimes it's scary. Like sometimes like it's literally yeah. some random man either from your yeah, past or yeah. from the internet who's just there and thinks he has a right to your time. Like stuff yeah. can get fucking dicey, you know? Uh, totally. which, which I won't get into here because it's depressing and weird. But like I remember, <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember um, a publicist I know said to me once, and I, I think about this every single time, I, I grit my teeth and go into a sparsely attended bookshop reading where they've sold 11 tickets and they're very excited about it, uh, which is that she once ha- in the 90s had to arrange a Q&A in a Waterstones between Seamus Heaney and Colm Tobin and in conversation with and had to cancel due to lack of interest. Oh, my God. It makes me feel God, so that- good. <laughs> That makes me feel really good. <laughs> I feel I'm really going to hold on to that on my yeah. dark days. Yeah. Um, but I think that the main sort of... Uh, the the winner of this whole episode is this train trip, right? Like, Oh, the train is so good. The fact that they think that... The fact that Carrie sells it is it's going to be like some like it hot and it's yeah. going to be like the Orient Express. And then they get onto this incredibly disappointing train we have all found ourselves disappointed at one point or another with the caledonian sleeper old movies are propaganda for for travel like for train travel it's <laughs> so true there are so many examples of beautiful trains out there in old movies and none of us can believe they don't exist anymore it's so depressing <laughs> it's really funny i think the bathos of Samantha and Carrie, it you know, carrying their cute luggage and having their little train outfits being shown their their cabin by the sort of plaintive <laughs> man who works on the train. Yeah. It's very, very funny. It's so and like Carrie's outfit is like this like nineteen twenties like flapper girl outfit with a visor. <laughs> ah, the clothes are mad this season, I think. They're fruity. They're very fruity. And her hair is very fruity as well. Like, she does <laughs> mad things with it, I think. Um, this is also the episode where we get to see evidence of the fact that we proposed in series one, which is Samantha loves the sesh. She loves the sesh. Drunk so Samantha good. is so good. So funny. Like, when she... I love. I just love when they've they've completely failed with uh with this sort of stag do that's on the train, and they sort of like hobble in there and try and make something happen, and it just completely fails. And they go back into the cabin and they get really pissed, and uh, Samantha's just so drunk, and she's just like, "I'm having an exist an existential a midlife thing," and then she just takes out the two chicken fillets and throws them off. It's such good sesh. It's such good sesh. Oh, and when she, when Carrie pops her pimple and Samantha says, let's order another bottle to celebrate. I'm like, God, I just want to be in that cabin so hard. So hard. Yeah. And the thing is, it's like these unglamorous moments 
like looks so much fun in in this series like the coach trip and the train trip it's like oh I, I want to be I want to do this more than anything just yeah. I think it really does speak to how much we're all just missing our friends just like oh I just want to yeah, so, be in so a cramped true. little compartment with a fun lady <laughs> you know yeah yeah making the most of it yeah <laughs> exactly um and then they they get to San Francisco she opens for the dog When's Mr. Winkles coming out? (laughs) Just a few moments. And then there is an amazing reveal. I remember when I first watched that being really like surprised by it. And I, and I loved it that he, a man puts his hand up and she says, I can see a hand, but I can't see a man. And then they, it's literally so cheesy. The crowd parts and it's big. And he says, Oh, this Mr. Big character. Does he have a name? So baiting the teenage girl audience who think this is the most important thing in the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I also, I love the twist in the Big and Carrie relationship in this episode that he is obsessed with her book and he has this moment of reckoning with himself of reading about his behavior and thinking about how he treated her and he does it as we have said we're obsessed with Chris North he's a fucking amazing comedy actor and he does it so well of this man reckoning with his own mistreatment of this woman and mm, it's happened to me definitely happens really definitely definitely I've I've always Nora Ephron wrote about it so beautifully when she was talking about Carl Bernstein. Yeah, and I think I remember reading Nora Ephron on this. I think she wrote it as a foreword for the the, the reissue yeah. of Heartburn where she yeah, was like... that's it. Yeah. Um, you know, they did these things, but apparently the real crime is me writing about them. And like, yeah. that is such a thing of a writer's existence that I find so infuriating where it's like people are allowed to be as terrible as they want in private, but as soon as you say something even mildly incendiary in public, it becomes like this wrong thing that you did. And it completely supplants the bad act the other person did to begin with, right? But it's so funny. It's, it's so, so funny. We've been, we've been, we sound like we're being really miserable about it. Yeah. It's actually really, really fucking funny. It's great. It's so, so good. I think I actually, I wrote down some of the bits here. Because um, she's just horny for him. She wants to objectify him. She wants to be in a transactional relationship, which is all he ever really wanted. Yeah. And he is faced with the... Um, reality of how he hurt her and he finds himself unable to engage with her sexually at all and it is really a great great comic twist to their relationship i think it's and their power so, dynamic it's so good and he's just like he, just, he every time she tries to get close to him she she like he just holds up the book the, the book is almost like a shield away from her physicality and he's like yeah she's like oh what are you oh my god my favorite part of physical comedy and it makes them makes them so funny together and further proof of why they're a better couple when they're not together which is like she's trying to seduce him after they've had this long dinner where he's only talked about like the ways he appears in this book and she um, opens her hotel door after kicking Samantha out of the bubble bath and he's like you made, you made me in, you know, wander around the hotel gift shop for 30 minutes I got a pack of big reds and it's like this pack of chewing gum and he gives her the pack of chewing gum and she tries to seductively she like 
obviously I'm doing things with my hands, which I shouldn't be doing, but she like slowly slivers out the long strip and then like unfurls the foil and then she tries to feed him. <laughs> and then she gum. teases. Yeah, then she <laughs> pulls it away and he's like, what? <laughs> Leave the man alone. And, and he's reading from the book and he's like, he was like the city itself, cold, infuriating cold. and exhausting. <laughs> See, that's what I'm talking about. When have I ever been cold? Am I cold? <laughs> no, you're hot. You're very hot. <laughs> it's so great because it. it's like this brilliant inversion of like, you know, the date situation that we've all seen played out a million times, which is a man who just wants a woman to shut the fuck up so he can screw her. <laughs> it's like, yes, it's just exactly. Like- exactly. That's why it's so good is that it's this amazing subversion. It's like, you know, when we talked in series two, I think it is where, well, maybe it's series one, where she goes to his house and he's just trying to watch a sports match. And she's yeah. just like, it's like this amazing reclamation of her being the one being in charge and her trying to make this simplistic and him being so neurotic. It feels so satisfying. It's so good. And what's also good about it as well is that when somebody has hurt you in a big way, you dream of the day, like you dream of them reading the column and like of like them having, the, you having your day in court where like you have all the evidence in front of you and you just want them to see what they've done and how they've hurt you. Yeah. Um, but yeah. then once you act, when you do get those days in court and you have them, you always feel like shit immediately. Because <laughs> yeah, you're like, not, oh, yeah. I, I wanted this to play like a movie where I just say my thing and you feel bad and then I walk out. Or it's just like, it's so not, it's so not important to you anymore. And she's just like, it's fine. I'm fine. <laughs> Okay, we need to move on to the last episode. Oh, one of my favourite episodes of all time. It's so good. It's perfect. Nathan Lane, one of the best cameos, I think. Bobby Fine is his name. Oh, I see. He's one of those cameos where he's a famous actor, but we actually use his character's name, which is a big, that's a big compliment. Bobby Fine is his name and he is set up so well when it opens with him doing this sort of cabaret performance mm-hmm. of an upbeat version of Peggy Lee's Is That All There Is? And there's this amazing moment that I think, as journalists, we've all been waiting for since we watched this episode, and it's never happened when we go to Ronnie Scott's, <laughs> where a man on a piano takes a instrumental break, and over it, into the mic, he says... I now have to say hello to a celebrity guest, a little Miss Carrie Bradshaw. And it's just so like, when I watch these moments, it's like the same feeling I get from the episode in series four with that really handsome gay Australian man spots Carrie Bradshaw across the bar and he's like, a martini for the lovely and talented Miss Carrie Bradshaw. I'm I'm just, I watched this as a young woman being like, right, this is, this is what being a journalist will be like. And I don't mind the lie. I don't mind that like Carrie Bradshaw is this completely undeserved, you know, Manhattan celebrity who's friends with men who invested in 
what was it? The producers or what was it? A chorus line. A chorus Very line. Very great detail. He was one of the original investors for a chorus line. I love it. Yeah. I love the lie. Like when I watched this episode, I'm like, I love that Carrie Bradshaw is this glamorous. It's yeah. so exciting to me. I think it's such a belief. I think she refers to him as her satellite friend, which I think is a very good term of like someone, someone you've known forever and you're going to know forever and you will never be on anything more than like casual drink terms. Like you you get a drink together once a year and never planned. You know, I love that. And that's like something that makes the show feel so much more real is the existence of these people and these people that often come back like Susan Sharon or Bitsy Van Muffling, like, these people who just exist in the fabric of this world and they're all so fabulous and so strange and I love them. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, so really I. what I love about them. And like when people say very cliched things like, oh, the fifth character is New York. What they mean is the fifth character is all these characters. Do you know? It's like... Oh, 100%. I totally agree. And it's, it's in moments like these where I just like totally defend the right of Sex and the City and in fact all art. I'm drunk now. <laughs> of, like depicting something that's not real i'm glad yeah, yeah i'm I glad like i'm happy that it's like heightened and and aspirational no and- i com- i totally agree yeah i've heard I, I think i've heard either the creators of the show or sarah jessica parker when she's a bit of a po-faced mood she um <laughs> she'll say like oh all these girls moved to New York because they want to live like Carrie Bradshaw and I worry for them. It's like babe don't worry. It's like don't worry. Yeah. They learn really quickly that these things aren't real and they stay anyway. You know it's yeah. but it's important yeah. like we still need to believe in these things in this in this world where like you can just like rock up to this like fabulous cabaret bar and like be shouted out by the the guy at the piano and and whatever and. The thing is, is that once in a blue moon, and you don't have to be a journalist for it to happen, is that things like that do happen, you know? We've all like, we've all had one of those glittering moments where, like, you're... Say you're with a friend from out of town and you're, sh- you're showing them London and somebody comes up to you and, and you have a bit of a glamorous exchange and your friend sees and they go, wow, you know everyone. And you go, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't or, need or to be just, big, you know? Totally just these incidental moments that, that feed you of like, oh, I'm connected to strangers or we're all a part of yeah. something or isn't life unpredictable in a city and exciting? It's these tiny things, you're right, that can happen on a street or in a bar and they happen in your early 20s and it's enough to make you stick around in to yeah. quote Hannah Horvath these cities that don't really want us here you know that make it really so difficult true. for us to rent here and live here that's the reason why we stay it's the it's the hope of the romance of it and it's the nostalgia of it and it's the excitement of it yeah and I I believe it I believe in the dream of cities you know so do I <laughs> okay let's talk about this episode because it is the honestly I think like I think it is my favourite episode up there with shortcomings, the Justin Through mm. episode. I think it feels like quite a cinematic episode. Mm. I love, obviously I love Bobby Fine. I love that this episode sets up these huge stories and mm. leaves them on a cliffhanger for the next series. So this is the episode where Charlotte tells Harry that she's in love with him. Yeah. And we haven't talked about the fact that the Harry Charlotte seduction scene in a previous episode, I 
think is the best seduction scene in Sex and the City. Do you think? Oh, I love it so I much. I find it a bit embarrassing. I think it's like... Oh, a bit... I find it very horny. Really? I do, yeah. In yeah. a horrible bachelor apartment where like he t- he turns on the weird music and he's like, Charlotte, I can't stop thinking about your soft pink lips. <laughs> when you say my name, it drives me crazy. I love it. I love it. And she's just like inexplicably getting hot. And yeah, I just think it's like so, so brilliant that they use this character who's so meticulous and prissy and obsessed with perfectionism to have this experience that all of us at one point in our lives will experience of like what it is to feel this extraordinary, inexplicable sexual attraction to someone who is on paper the absolute opposite of everything you should be. Yeah. Going yeah. for. It's so good. But the thing is, it's not like it's really great when you see them together because it's this inst- it's like the first time that you in the whole show that you see Charlotte being herself with a man. She really is, isn't she? Like this thing of Charlotte's constantly picking at Harry and he doesn't care. You can just tell that like, yeah, Harry's just used to women just fucking give it out to him. He doesn't give a shit. He thinks she's great. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And it's yeah, sort of it's really, really fit. It, she yeah. doesn't have to do this like waspy thing where she pretends to criticize when and when she has to see seem like she's being gentle about things. She's just like, I hate that you're doing this and I hate your shirt and this is shit and stop this. And he's like, okay. <laughs> it's like And he rolls and he either rolls his eyes or he laughs or he grabs her and snogs her. It's so hot. Yeah, yeah. And as as she's allowed to sort of just be a person and just be a bit of a be a bit of a snipey bitch with him, and it's like it really, it's like all these like blocks that have been put on her personality that just get taken away, and she's just allowed to breathe, you know? Yeah, I completely agree. I love this storyline so much. Yeah, it's so good, and I love when they're just like eating pizza in bed together, and uh, just like. Ugh. Do you know what it is? It's it's, so good. I think it's like every single 30-something plus woman's fantasy of what it would be like to throw all your neuroses at a man and all yes. your baggage and all your issues and for the bloke to just look at you dead in the eye and be like, I'm not falling for it. Like, whatever. You keep throwing it at me. I'm not going to react. It's so good. It's like, whatever. It's, I don't care. I'm obsessed with you. I don't, <laughs> you keep, you keep doing this, whatever your fucking, like, you know, deep psychological <laughs> shit going on is, that you're like in the mulch of, you throw it at me and you can't put me off. Like, just keep throwing it because it's going to just slide stri- straight off. It's like, yeah, it's, it's a very appealing fantasy, I think. It's so great. And it's so, it's so brilliantly acted by him as well. It's like, he doesn't give in to Charlotte because he's this weak guy. He does it because he's really fucking strong. Do you know what I mean? He's like... Yeah, exactly. exactly. He, like his self-esteem, unlike, you know, your Jack Burgers or your Trey McDougalls, his self-esteem can't be broken down by someone saying that his back hair is ugly or his shirt sucks. Yeah. He's just yeah. like, yeah, I'm... He- I'm great. I love me. Yeah. <laughs> like... And he's got a great sense of humor about himself. Totally. Because it would be so easy for Charlotte to like end up with a character that is pandering. And he's the absolute opposite of that. You're right. He really likes yeah. himself. I think he thinks he really he likes deserves. himself. And the things he gives yeah. her are things he doesn't care about. Really. Yeah. You know, and just, Oh, I love him at the wedding with her. I love so how do I. they're all sitting in a row and he's like joking with them, you know, 
he says something like, oh, uh, I don't think that's the only information she's been van muffling. And they all sort of laugh and they're like, oh, he's funny. You know, they laugh. But beyond them laughing, I think that the way that girls react to Harry is like the most telling of any boyfriend, friend relationship in Sex City. Obviously, there's been a bit of it with Aiden. Hmm. And there's like one episode in this series with Richard and the girls. But the fact there's like a face that Carrie pulls when he makes that joke of like, she's impressed. Yeah. And yeah. then that's so like, they really hold on it. So it must've been like an important moment editorially. And then there's this gorgeous bit where he's dancing and he goes over to her and she's sitting with the girls and he says, I haven't got anything on my face. I'm wearing the right shirt will you dance with me? Like, I'm a shit dancer, but like, that's the risk that every man is willing to take. Oh, he says, that's the risk that every man has to take, which I think is such a great line. Has to take. And Miranda, who is famously the hardest critic on her friends' partners, just like, through the corner of her mouth, says to Carrie and Charlotte, I think you might have sold this one a little short. Oh, it's I love so it so beautiful. Much. And it's such a moment of like, these girls are like, that moment that you have sometimes with a friend's new partner where you're like, oh, we're going to be going on holiday together and you're yeah. going to be, my child is going to be staying at your house when it's a teenager. And, you know, just that feeling oh, of like shared future. I really get it in that moment. They really amp it up in this episode of like the girls are really investing in Harry, even though Charlotte's not quite ready to. Yeah. Oh. I love this episode so much. Now I want to ask when you had that moment with Gavin, but I feel like it's too self-indulgent. <laughs> <laughs> Caroline and I talk about something we call the Provencal fire pit <laughs> yes the fire pit is very important yeah which is now that my best friends in the world all have partners who i like particularly with gavin i'm deeply deeply in love with that man both as a person and as a man who loves you and he's a friend of mine and he's someone who i see in my life for a very very long time Aww. when you're like the last single girl, which I feel like a lot of the time, when I'm thinking about partners now, I, I do think about not only how will they fit into my life and how will they fit into my friendship group, I think about how will they get on with my friends' partners who are now like my really close friends like Gav. Mm. And me and Caroline like <laughs> to think about us in our late 40s renting an airbnb in the south of france caroline and i having put the kids to bed cackling away three bottles of rosé in in the kitchen the cackle echoes out of the farmhouse and gavin finds himself standing around a fire pit with a beer to his chest making small talk with my paramour and yeah Nearly every time I go on a date with a new man, I think, not immediately, but within the first hour, what's he going to be like with Gavin around that fire pit? I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, can he he go toe-to-toe with Gavin at the fire pit? That fantasy is such my happy place. I really think about it a lot. I think think about it all the time. (laughs) I think about it all the time 
<laughs> and circling back, I really do think when the girls are at the wedding and they are laughing at Harry's joke and being like, oh, the man is funny, he can make good jokes. He's a person who observes things. He's smart. And when he comes over and he's being sweet and he's trying to dance, they're thinking of the fire pit. They are. They're imagining the fire pit. Yeah. They're getting to that fire pit age, you know? They are. They are. Yeah. Do you think anyone sees Jack Berger at the fire pit, though? <laughs> I forgot this is the return of Jack Berger this episode. Oh, he's Ooh. constantly going, coming and going. I do love their weird little date on the grass, though. Oh, it's great. Yeah. At Samantha's party where she goes from Barbara Streisand to Woody Allen and she's talking about her relationship with Aiden and she's doing like, oh, we didn't we didn't fuck each other up the first time enough and now we came back for a second go and then we ruined each other's lives even more. And she's doing this like neurotic thing and it's like so unattractive to him and he just bolts. Yeah, and literally the, he's like, it's so well done. It's such a good slapstick bit that like he bolts so hard that he gets on the motorbike and he like falls off it <laughs> trying to get away from her. Men have uh, definitely done that to me. And then he just, oh God. And then the episode wraps up with a sequence that is so beautifully done. And I remember last year sending you a video like a little clip that i'd done on my phone of my favorite ever four seconds of sex in the city which is is that all there is like a slowed down version of is that all there is Mm. is playing and you see yeah they do the cinematic cliffhanger where burger and carrie You feel like they're on the precipice of something, even though they're Mm. both wounded and they're both nervous and they're both cynical, but they're both hopeful, all tying in with our great American novel. Mm -hmm. And then you see Harry say to Charlotte, I adore you, but I can't marry a woman who isn't Jewish. You see Stanford and Marcus dancing. And then the camera just pans and you see Miranda. Oh, welling up. You see Miranda holding Brady and Samantha does this beautiful dance move with her where she she twirls Miranda around with the baby and then she like beckons, like teasingly, she beckons Miranda back to her in this really sweet way. And for me, that is the greatest resolution of this mostly plotless season, Mm. which is Samantha has accepted that one of her best friends is a mother now and it's like I think it's the most tender and most poignant moment of Sex and the City I really do that those few seconds of them dancing together and the fact that it's at a wedding and it's meant to be about romance and it's meant to be about you know long-term romantic love and actually it's about like this is the big finale that Samantha has decided to if she wants to dance with Miranda she needs to dance with Miranda and Brady that's very very beautifully surmised I didn't think I had that many feelings about that particular bit but now I do oof kills me it's another reference to Miranda and the natural world in this episode (laughs) (laughs) you couldn't help yourself I couldn't 
Miranda and the Lilacs. Oh, it's it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. Which actually, I want to I want to cite the Lilacs in um, our next segment, which is Man of the Season, as we are now getting to the end of the podcast. Um, so Man of the Season, and the, I have a few, but one of them is Steve, and I know that's boring because Steve's been my man before. But there's something very specific about when she comes home on this sort of like late summer day and it's really hot outside and Steve's in her bedroom with Brady with the fan on and he's got the lilacs in the jar that he's picked for her and he's just having a bit of a snooze with Brady. And uh, first of all, David Eigenberg just looks very cute in that scene. And they and they, and they they have this really like lovely gentle sex. And... But second of all, it's just like, it's just very Gavin. It's like, there's, that man is so reliable. And one of the most reliable things about him is how much he loves asleep. Like, I just, he's like, <laughs> it's like living with a six foot one cat is just always, if there's a beam of sunshine, Gavin Day is asleep in You're it. News in it, yeah. But... And just like there was something, and I I don't have kids, but you know it's something I'm thinking about over the next few years. And like the idea of like coming home to a fan on, and you know my husband or my partner asleep with my baby. It was just I could like I was like oh that's gonna be me someday, and it made me really yeah. It made me really no, happy. you're right. There's something really really tender and sexy about that scene, and I don't want to be shallow. I think it's really amped up by the fact that Miranda, Cynthia Nixon is wearing lilac eyeshadow. And I think it's the prettiest she's ever looked. Yeah. Yeah. She's gorgeous those last few episodes, I think. Yeah. And there's something about the fact I love that with Cynthia Nixon in this series, they, I mean, they make a whole storyline out of it. Uh, in you know they make sort of comedy storylines out of it in the first few episodes which I feel a bit conflicted about but in those later episodes they don't hide the fact that she is postpartum and that she that that scene in particular mm. I remember she comes in and she's got this beautiful lilac eyeshadow on and she's mm. looks at the lilacs and it all just feels very soft and hazy and snoozy and sleepy mm. and gorgeous but she's also just softer she's got yeah. she's got the body of a woman who's just had a baby, which she'd done, you know, that had happened in real life and they don't try and conceal that. And I think that's, that feels really beautiful and sexy. I agree. And like, I this is, this is going to sound really like shallow and stupid, but I think Cynthia Nixon is a beautiful woman anyway, but I think she's particularly beautiful when she has that softness about her. Yeah. I think yeah, it I really, agree. it really, really suits her. Um, my other man of the season, I think, has to be... <laughs> Go on. <laughs> the, ma- the man in the rain who doesn't take Carrie's shit. Because <laughs> he's, he's so beautiful. gorgeous. He's beautiful. He's he looks gorgeous. Like he's in- thing is, he does look like he's from a French film. And like he's got this yeah. like gorgeous like Gallic features. And it's like sort of... That thing that the French people have where it's like the kind of light hair but dark features is very arresting and he doesn't say a single word and he just bolts into the rain because he can't stand her bloody jibber jabber (laughs) (laughs) so i agree i agree with both of those i would also nominate lewis Leroy, of course Mm. and (laughs) of um, the band five (laughs) 
<laughs> from five, as we all remember him in five. Um, Officer Matt Cook. Oh, who yes. Is the, who is the square-jawed Ken doll man who says to Charlotte, show me your tits. <laughs> and you see, I think, the first and only nipple of Charlotte York. Oh, yeah. You're probably right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's very hot. Yeah. And I'm going to th- I'm going to throw in Marcus as well because I think Marcus is young and fun. Oh, Marcus is so fit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so Good fit. Good call. You could grate cheese on those abs. <laughs> <laughs> um the Carrie Clanger, we've cited quite a few. But to rattle through them, uh Lewis from Louisiana, very weird. The endless burger puns, very weird. Not good. Not good. I hate the Zaza Zoo. <laughs> I, it's so funny. I don't mind it. Oh, I know one. I don't like how Carrie reacts to Samantha's facial peel. Yes. Awful. Hate that. So weird. Where she's like trying to get her to leave her own her book launch that she helped plan. Like awful. Really depressed me that. There's, there's like a strong theme in this season maybe it's before as well but like people being like embarrassed by how the person they're with looks like the thing with harry as well it's like who gives a fuck yeah like that actually you know that whole episode which i watched when i was obviously very young was the first time i was ever even alerted to the idea that men had back hair and that it was unacceptable you know yeah i'm sure up to then i'd probably seen lots of men who had back hair on the beach and never thought about it and then like it's really not a problem Really For not, any man who's listening, which I which I think is probably one and a half, it's really not a problem. Yeah, it's not a thing. I also love that in that scene, Samantha says a surprisingly astute thing about her own appearance where she's like, society demands that we look young mm. and yet I have to put myself through... <laughs> this physical hell and torture and I'm made to feel ashamed about that and I have to hide it even though it's something that I've been told I have to do yeah yeah ridiculous it's really good it's really like she she makes a point really well but then she still has to sort of go home in shame because of like yeah I don't don't like that at all outfit of the season I don't really love the clothes I do think a lot of it is the fact that Sarah Jessica Parker was pregnant, so she wears quite a lot of trapeze dresses and mm. smock dresses. She wears a kind of apple green juicy couture strapless toweling dress when she confronts Nina Katz, which I adore and mm. I'm currently looking for on eBay. Uh, but other than that, I don't have loads of fashion moments that I love this series. I love all of the Atlantic City wear. Me too. I love Carrie's slaggy sequin top. Split down the middle. Yes, yes. And I love Charlotte's um, like pink dress that she wears when she decides she doesn't want to be the old maid. Oh, yeah, that I love that. But you're right as well. I don't have a lot of like, ooh, I want to wear that moments in this. No. This has been Sentimental in the City, season five. We're barreling towards the end now. And, uh, yeah, we hope you'll join us next week for season six. Oh, God, I'm really... Oh, I don't know if I'm ready for the season to end. The good news is 
every season we add another bottle of wine in another hour. So season six will be five hours long. <laughs> five hours long. Yeah, maybe we'll split them out over several episodes, the Paris years, etc. <laughs> um, okay, I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You've been Dolly Alderton. This has been Sentimental in the City. Please leave a review, etc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.